Chapter Nineteen of The Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Nineteen. Not all of their days were spent at work. There were mornings when the wind would not permit an ascent, and when there was nothing to do in the workshop. They sat about the lunch wagon, wrangling endlessly, or like Carl and Forrest Havlin wandering through fields which were all one flame with poppies. Lieutenant Havlin had given up trying to feel comfortable with the naval ensign student, who was one of the solemn worthies who clear their throats before speaking, and then speak in measured terms of brands of cigars and weather. Gradually, working side by side with Carl, Havlin seemed to find him a friend in whom to confide. Once or twice they went by trolley to San Francisco to explore Chinatown or drop in on soldier friends of Havland at the Presidio. From the porch of a studio on Telegraph Hill in San Francisco, they were looking down on the islands of the bay, waiting for the return of an artist whom Havland knew. Inarticulate dreamers both, they expressed in monosyllables the glory of blue water before them. The tradition of R.L.S. and Frank Norris, the future of aviation, they gave up the attempt to explain the magic of San Francisco, that city personality which transcends the opal hills and rare amber sunlight, festivals, and the transplanted Italian hill town of Telegraph Hill. Liners sailing out for Japan and memories of the forty-niners. It was too subtle a spirit. Too much of it lay in human life, with the passion of the Riviera linked to the strength of the North, for them to be able to comprehend its spell. But regarding their own ambitions to do, they became eloquent. I say, hesitated Havlin, why is it I can't get in with most of the fellows at the camp, the way you can? I've always been chummy enough with the fellows at the point, and at posts. Because you've been brought up to be afraid to be anything but a gentleman. Oh, I don't think it's that. I can get fond as the deuce of some of the commonest common soldiers. And, Lord, some of them come from the Bowery and all sorts of impossible places. Yes, but you always think of them as common. They don't think of each other that way. Suppose I'd worked. Well, just suppose I'd been a Bowery bartender. Could you be loafing around here with me? Could you go off on a bat with Jack Ryan? Well, maybe not. Maybe working with Jack Ryan is a good thing for me. I'm getting now so I can almost stand his stories. I envy you knocking around with all sorts of people. Oh, I wish I could call Ryan Jack and feel easy about it. I can't. Perhaps I've got a little of the subaltern snob someplace in me. You? You're a prince. If you've elevated me to a princedom, the least I can do is invite you down home for a weekend, down to the San Spirito Presidio, my father's commandant there. Oh, I'd like to do that, but I haven't got a dress suit. Buy one. Yes, I could do that, but... Oh, rats, Forrest, I've been knocking around so long I feel shy about my table manners and everything. I'd probably eat pie with my fingers. You make me so darn tired, Hawk. You talk about my having to learn to chum with people in overalls. You've got to learn not to let people in evening clothes put anything over on you. That's your difficulty from having lived in the back country these last two or three years. You have an instinct for manners. 
but I did notice that as soon as you found out I was in the army, you spent half the time disliking me as a militarist, and the other half expecting me to be haughty. Lord knows what over. It took you two weeks to think of me as Forrest Haviland. I'm ashamed of you. If you're a socialist, you ought to think that anything you like belongs to you. That's a new kind of socialism. So much the better. Me and Karl Marx, the economic inventors. But I was saying, if you act as though things belong to you, people will apologize to you for having borrowed them from you. And you've got to do that, Hawk. You're going to be one of the best-known flyers in the country. And you'll have to meet all sorts of big guns, generals and senators and female climbers that work the peace societies for social position, and so on. And you've got to know how to meet them. Anyway, I want you to come down to San Spirito. To San Spirito they went. During the three days preceding, Carl was agonized at the thought of having to be polite in the presence of ladies, no matter how brusquely he told himself, I'm as good as anybody. He was uneasy about folks and slang and fingernails, and looked forward to the ordeal with as much pleasure as a man about to be hanged. Hanged in a good cause, but thoroughly. Yet when Colonel Haviland met them at San Spirito Station, and Carl heard the kindly salutation of the gracious, fat, old Indian fighter, he knew that he had at last come home to his own people, an impression that was the stronger because the house of Oscar Erickson had been so much house and so little home. The colonel was a widower, and for his only son he showed a proud affection, which included Carl. The three of them sat in state after dinner on the porch of quarters number one, smoking cigars and looking down to a spur of the Santa Lucia Mountains, where it plunged into the foam of the Pacific. They talked of aviation and eugenics, and the Benet Mercier gun, of the post-doctor's sister who had come from the east on a visit, and of a writing test, but their hearts spoke of affection. Usually it is a man and a woman that make home, but three men, a stranger, one of them, talking of motors on a porch, in the enveloping dusk, made for one another a home to remember, always. They stayed over Monday night for a hop, and Carl found that the officers and their wives were as approachable as Hank O'Dell. They did not seem to be waiting for young Erickson to make social errors. When he confessed that he had forgotten what little dancing he knew, the sister of the post-doctor took him in hand, retaught him the waltz, and asked with patient admiration, how does it feel to fly? Don't you get frightened? I'm terribly in awe of you, Mr. Haviland. I know I should be frightened to death, because it always makes me dizzy just to look down from a high building. Carl slipped away, to be happy by himself, and hid in the shadow of palms on the porch, lapped in the flutter of pepper-trees. The orchestra began a waltz that set his heart singing. You heard a girl cry, Oh, goody! The Blue Danube! We must go and dance to that. The Blue Danube, the name brought back the novels of General Charles King, as he had read them in high school days, flashed the picture of a lonely post, yellow-lighted like a topaz, on the night-swathed desert, a rude ballroom, a young officer dancing to the Blue Danube's intoxication, a hot-riding, dusty courier, hurling in with the news of an Apache outbreak, a few minutes later, a troop of cavalry slanting out through the gate on horseback, with a farewell burning the young officer's lips. 
He was in just such an army story now. The scent of royal climbing roses enveloped Carl as that picture changed into others. San Spirito Presidio became a vast military encampment over which Hawk Erickson was flying. From his monoplane he saw a fairy town with red roofs rising to a tower of fantastic turrets. That was doubtless the memory of a magazine cover painted by Maxfield Parrish. He was wandering through a poppy field, with a girl dusky of eyes, soft black of hair, ready for any jaunt, pictures bright and various as tropic shells, born of music and peace, and his affection for the Havilands, pictures which promised him the world. For the first time Hawk Erickson realized that he might be a personage instead of a backyard boy. The girl with twilight eyes was smiling. The Bagby camp broke up on the first of May, with all of them except one of the nondescript collegians and the air-current student, more or less trained aviators. Carl was going out to tour small cities for the George Flying Corporation. Lieutenant Haviland was detailed to the Army Flying Camp. Parting with Haviland and kindly Hank O'Dell, with Carmaru and anxiously polite Tony Bean, was as wistful as the last night of senior year. Till the old moon rose, sad behind tulip trees, they sat on packing boxes by the larger hangar, singing in close harmony, sweet Adeline, teasing, I've been working on the railroad, hayride classics with barbershop chords. The songs are called, but tears were in Carl's eyes as the miners sobbed from the group of comrades who made fun of one another and were proasic and pounded their heels on the packing boxes, and knew that they were parting to face death. Carl felt Forrest Haviland's hand on one shoulder, then an awkward pat from tough Jack Ryan's paw, as Tony Bean's violin turned the plaintive half-light into music and broke its heart in the moonlight sonata. End of chapter 19